Hi friends, welcome back on my channel. Uh, today I have another interview and it's none other than the author of the famous 100 bagger book. It's uh, the book uh, that's the basis of my whole uh, investment strategy. I've made a summary video about uh, this strategy. Um, of course, I link it in the description below. You can have a look at it. I rewatch it regularly. And uh, yeah, today I would like to uh, just talk with the author himself and uh, ask him uh, some questions. Chris, welcome to my channel. Hey, thank you for having me on. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Yeah, so um, basically you spent uh, $50,000 on, on the study. Uh, that, that was the basis uh, for this book. And mm. your book has been doing uh, pretty well. It has over 1,000 uh, uh, five-star reviews on, on Amazon and has been translated to, to many uh, languages, um, uh, yeah, among others, uh, Korean, Mandarin and others. And yeah, as I said, it's, it's been uh, the cornerstone of my own strategy. So I'm really keen to, to ask some uh, questions. And uh, yeah, uh, the, the cool thing is that it's not only about 100 baggers because a lot of those stocks um, ended up being a thousand baggers or more, which means that $10,000 um, can potentially become uh, $10 million, which is a fantastic strategy. And what I like most about it is that it's replicable. It's not some obscure strategy that's um, based on some algorithms and some trading. Uh, it's really down to earth and replicable. And that's what I like most. So in your book, you talk about uh, investing for the long term, at least 10 years ideally 26 years, because that's been the average um, of a stock to become a 100 bagger. So uh, I'm just curious, um, uh, from your point of view, how long um, did you hold your uh, longest, your oldest stock? What's your record? Um, right. uh, and which one was that, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, <clears throat> well, you know, for, for I started you know, the 100 bagger research in, I think it was 2013. So, you know, before that, I really didn't think about it that way. So uh, I wish I did. I wish I had come to those ideas when I was much younger. And then perhaps I'd have a, a stock that has a much better record, you know, holding it now than I did. Um, but to answer your question, uh, I think the stock that I've held the longest is Berkshire Hathaway, which I've had sitting in an IRA account for, I don't know, I mean, probably probably around that time, 20, 2015 or so, um, somewhere around there. That's probably the stock type that I've owned the longest right now. And again, you know, it's, uh, it's because I didn't really have that philosophy in place until around that time. And, um, and it takes a long time to sort through and find names that you really like. And then of course I made this transition where now I have a, a fund of my own and that started in 2019. So, I liquidated my entire personal account and everything that I had when I started the fund and, and, uh, uh, you know, now, so everything starts from that 2019 date. So I can't really say that I own those stocks continuously because I had to sell them. And, 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 but if you're thinking like, you know, stocks that I've owned for long periods of time, yeah, that's Berkshire's the winner. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, it's really t 10 years, even 10 years, um, you suggest the, the coffee can portfolio, it's a really long time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 26 it's years, is, it's, a, it's an eternity. 
Um, yeah, I, I recently talked with a friend about the 100 bagger strategy, and his argument was that there was an inherent survivorship bias in, in this study. Um, mm -hmm. So for each 100 bagger, there was probably um, multiple um, other companies that looked similar, but mm -hmm. didn't make it. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, you know, it's kind of funny that that survivorship bias, like everybody's read Taleb's book. So they, you know, every once in a while, somebody will want to say survivorship bias and they think they're, you know, have some wisdom there that nobody knows about. I mean, I, I think that, uh, when it comes to the hundred bagger study, it's, it's at the bottom, it's a math problem. So all these stocks compounded capital at a certain rate for a certain number of years to get to hundred X. And there are no companies that did not become hundred baggers that did not compound their capital at least a certain number over a certain number of years, right? So if it's 25 years at 20% compounded there, uh, you know, there's no other way to become a hundred bagger uh, than to compound capital at that rate over that period of time, if you're going to hit it at 25 years, let's say. So um, I think where the survivorship bias comes in and where you got to be more careful is drawing certain lessons from, from those companies. So we have this batch of companies and it's true. It may be, let's say, um, let's just say hypothetically, you know, uh, they all had profit margins of at least 10%, but it doesn't mean that there weren't companies that had profit margins of at least 10% that didn't make it. But I think the core is that, that underlying engine, that return on capital and the ability to reinvest. And that's kind of the core logic of it. And there's no way to become a hundred bagger unless you have that. So the survivorship bias argument doesn't really work there because again, all those companies didn't make it. They weren't compounding capital at that at that rate. So that's the focus of it. And then what we want to do is we want to kind of unpack and figure out, you know, how those companies made it. And that's where it's a lot more tricky. And there's a lot more interpretation involved and where you do have to be careful, more careful about the survivorship bias. So if you have companies that um, met the criteria for a really long time, then yeah, at, at one point they, they have to become a a multi-bagger, right? So maybe they don't hit the 100 bagger, but at least um, they should be worth much, much more than, than yeah. before. And then there's also companies that, you know, get there and then collapse afterwards. So there's examples. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Kodak was a, was a hundred bagger and then became a disaster. So, uh, you know, that, that would be an interesting, if I had to rewrite the book, that would be maybe another chapter in there would be the stocks that hit a hundred X, but then basically collapsed at some point afterwards and and then to kind of figure out you know what was the undoing let's say of 100 baggers what were some of the big reasons why you because get to be 100x again now in my study i took out a lot of the things like little penny mining stocks that went from 40 cents to you know five bucks because they had some <laughs> or whatever you know they had some discovery of some kind of whatever it was so i did have some market cap cutoffs and i was trying to get to a set of, a population of companies as you alluded to that would be replicable so we want companies that had some financial history and some things that we could look at and that that was really the focus so then when you look at that population you know we're, we're trying to draw some lessons from them yeah what i what i really like most about the strategy is that you um it it's basically, uh, yeah, you have to focus on the business, right? And not on the stock price. So as long as yeah. you focus on the business, as long as there is a huge um, addressable market, as long as the business is growing, growing its earnings, et cetera, 
um, yeah. then basically the fundamentals are growing. So the substance, the value, the intrinsic value is growing. Um, yeah. So then, um, yeah, it just is a matter of time before this is reflected in the in the stock price, right? That's right. And I think it gets really hard if you start paying attention, too much attention to the stock price. And then it becomes really difficult, not only because of the normal drawdowns. I mean, I, I talked about that in the book. Um, all these stocks had drawdowns. Of, you know, They all got cut in half. Even Berkshire Hathaway was a best stock in the study got cut in half several times. So that part's difficult. Um, the other part that's difficult is just the long stretches where these stocks don't go anywhere. Um, so again, I think to use Berkshire Hathaway's example, I think there was a seven year stretch where it went nowhere. Uh, that's a long time to hold on to a stock, especially when you're, you know, seeing all other kinds of stocks zoom by you and other people do better and, and you're always going to be tempted to switch horses. Right. So, it's long periods of boredom. And then there's other periods where the stock gets ahead of itself. And you you know the business really well. And you may say to yourself, you know, it's expensive. I know it's expensive. I know it's not going to hold this price. Uh, and it, it can be great temptation to sell then, then as well. Um, so it's... Now, I'm not going to say that there isn't a price at some point where you, where you take off, take it off. I mean... We can all envision extremes. If somebody offered me, you know, twenty times <laughs> what I'm, what I, what a price of today, I, I take it, right? You know, there's there's some point where you're gonna you're gonna draw the line. So this is the, all part of the the balancing act of it. But I I think if you the idea between a hundred bagger strategy is that you're very 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 reluctant seller and you're focusing on the business and you're thinking really long term, like in terms of owning a business for a decade. Which reminds me of Buffett's quote, you know, which is a great filter. And he says, if you if you wouldn't own a business for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. And that's a great filter because there's lots of ideas we all come across that you think will be a great trade. And, and yeah, the stock will definitely be higher a year out or, you know, people talk about that all the time. But would you own it for 10 years? And that's a different question. And I mean, it really takes out a lot of businesses when you think in those terms. Absolutely. And and yeah, from my own personal experience, the drawdowns, and if you yeah call it drawdowns, it, it doesn't feel <laughs> so bad, right? I mean, right. last year, my portfolio um, went down 60%. I mean, that's a huge drawdown. It, you might call yes. it a huge crash, right? And right. yeah, other 100 baggers, you you said it in the in the book, Amazon fell um, I think 92% at one point, Apple fell yeah. 80% um, at, at, yeah. on, on two occasions and many, many 40 to 60% drops. Um, how do you deal with such declines and, and such crashes personally? Yeah, I mean, I love the Amazon example and the Apple example, but they are, they are the extreme example. So, but I do think it's typical of the population to say that they will at least get cut in half. Um, and so this is becomes... A little tricky because if you're not in the right businesses to start with, uh, you know, maybe the 50% drawdown is really a permanent impairment and it reflects the business, uh, something fundamental uh, about the business. So you really have to focus on performance of the businesses. Now, this, this also limits me in some ways. Like, you know, I, I don't invest in any businesses that aren't making a profit and that aren't generating free cash flow today and, and then are not 
earning some return on capital today that I can see. Now, I know there's lots of you know great successes where you can um, people have bought businesses that are not profitable and they're kind of peeking around the corner and they're looking at union economics in three to five years. You know, I don't do that. I think you can do it that way, but it's just it's more difficult because you it's more difficult to really follow the, the business. I know it's doing well uh, in those situations versus, you know, I always use Copar as the example because it's so simple and clean. You know, if you look at if you look at a 10 or 15, 20 year plot of financial statements of Copar, it's just, you know, the ROE return on invested capital is just bang, 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 bang. Uh, in fact, it gets it's gotten better over years. Uh, so you've got a good, you know, engine there, good base. You can see it. You can see that value creation there in front of you. And it's easier to know then when it goes off the rails because you have this pattern, this long pattern uh, versus a business that maybe isn't making any money and is losing in, uh, cash flow where your where your uh, argument is all in the unit economics. It's just more difficult. I'm not saying it can't be done, but, um, you know, for most people, it's probably easier just to stick with businesses that are already profitable and already showing re good returns on capital. And, you know, this gets to some basic idea where you don't have to necessarily dig into really obscure things to make big multi-baggers, right? I mean, look at Microsoft 20 years ago. We all knew it was a great business. And what is the stock's up 10x at least since then, I think. So um, it's just, it's, it's really endlessly interesting. <laughs> And I think the recommendation again is to focus on the business, right? So even um, Berkshire Hathaway, when it didn't go anywhere for seven years, the underlying business was probably thriving, right? Was was yeah. um, growing, and they were buying yeah. businesses, and they were buying cheap stocks and things. So I think it it really um, you have to put on this this uh, business and owner this this business owner mentality, and yeah. that's what I really love about about the strategy. So. I think you yeah, could... I've done this with some of my own names. I've looked back and I've 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 gone back and seen, you know, periods of time when it, it didn't go anywhere. Well, was the business still performing? I, I did this a little while ago with Brown and Brown and I think there was a 6-year stretch when it went nowhere. Yeah. That's tough. I mean, you're when you're running a fund like I am now. It's maybe yeah. it's still tough even when you're an individual investor, but it's especially tough when you're running a fund and you're paid on incentives and people are watching you. You're holding this stock that hasn't gone anywhere for two, three, four years in a row. But if you're just focused on the business, you did see that you know cash flow per share and everything, all, all the trends you would want to see, just continued to get better, and the multiples just kept squeezing in, and then eventually, you know, uh, it took off and. And gets back to kind of trend line, but sometimes you know stock prices and businesses can diverge for a long period of time, and you have to be willing to sit through those periods. I mean, this is where it helps too to have a portfolio. So it's not like you have all the eggs in one basket. I mean, I like to have you know ten, twelve names, and mm -hmm. I can afford to have a couple stocks that don't go anywhere. Uh, you know, as long as the businesses are going well, I think you leave that alone. Yeah, absolutely. And um, have you ever thought about implementing a hedging strategy to protect yourself from these uh, collapses, from these crashes, um, like buying put options or, or anything? Um, because uh, if you if you have a stock that is highly volatile, for example, my largest position is Tesla. It was mm -hmm. um, yeah cut down seventy percent last year, and um, yeah, I'm just thinking, wouldn't it make sense when it's really an all time high after all time high? when the multiples really, really get out of uh, completely out of proportion 
wouldn't it make sense to to protect yourself like with a hedging strategy have you thought about that or is it just too expensive for such volatile stocks i mean i can see why people do it and i know some people are you know are very good at that and so but if you're asking me personally i don't do that mm. um, yeah i mean because then you're you know for me involves more decisions that i'm not sure i would get right and there would be some cost to that because you wouldn't get it right all the time you know there, mm. there's t lots of times where i've thought a business was getting kind of expensive and where i might have thought uh you know to do something like that and then it never did never did crash and go would go higher or so for me personally again people are good at it and they make those calls and and you know sometimes it maybe looks obvious but i don't think that's too often where it's obvious uh just in my own experience thinking back um it's not so clear cut and for me i want to just have as few decisions to make as possible <laughs> you know uh the more times you have to go in there and make decisions the more chances you have to get something wrong but and again i'm not particularly bothered by that by a drawdown on a business like that uh, a, a good business the businesses i own uh, i wouldn't i'm not particularly concerned with the drawdowns as long as the businesses are performing so it doesn't bother me enough where i would want to go out and try to hedge it and and do that sort of thing what was your biggest drawdown so far in an in the individual stock well i've had several um I don't know about biggest. I mean, I've had several have been cut in half already, even the short history of the fund. For example, I had Texas mm -hmm. Pacific for a while and that stock went from, I, I think my average was 600 and then it went to 1600 and then it went to 300 and then it went to 2,500. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of extreme variations there. Uh, I've had top, I have Topicus, which I rode from 60 to 142 and back to 60 and now it's 75 or something like that. Mm. Um, those would be the, I think that those are the two extremes, um, evolution I've had that one, I think it also was cut in half 1700 or so was the high in 2020 and got as low as 800 in the bear market last year, close to getting, yeah, that's cut in half. So, uh, those are some of the drawdowns, but you know, it's remarkable. You can just look at your portfolio and just do the high and low and see the difference. It doesn't even have to be your portfolio just look at a bunch of stocks look at the high and low in a year i mean it's incredibly wide variation just for almost for almost anything there you know there aren't very many stocks um where they're they don't have those kind of drawdowns. I, I think you know i own constellation software and that's one famously where the worst drawdown i think in its history might have been last year i'm not sure but even then it wasn't that wasn't nearly anything you know uh, wasn't anywhere near half, uh, but sometimes there are stocks like that that seem to resist drawdowns, but they're very few. Mm. And how do you deal with that emotionally? Like with your, um, investing partners, mm -hmm. uh, do you feel any pressure or obligation or yeah, just to deliver? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've told them this before. Like, uh, I remember someone asked me this question, the last annual meeting and, uh, my response was, you know, I don't really feel any pressure like myself, but the pressure I feel is when I think what other, what they might be thinking, and I feel a little mm. pressure. <laughs> but they're all like, no, no, where are we? You know, I have great partners, so it was very, very good. I mean, I've been very selective about who has been in the partnership. It's only like I only have twenty some partners. I, I've known almost all of them. Have been long term readers of mine from before. Um, so I mean, so for example, last year 
didn't have any redemptions at all. And in fact, the uh, fund took in money in, over the summer in particular. And that's happened twice now. 2020 took in a, quite a bit of money too. Um, so my partners have been very good. When we go through a rough patch like that, they tend to put more money in. Mm. Um, so, you know, and again, the businesses that I'm running, I, that I own are, you know, they have all very high returns on capital. They produce a lot of cash flow, no no debt or very light debt. Um, they're the insiders. There's a lot of skin in the game. So there's certainly people there you know, at the controls who have a lot more at risk than we do. Uh, and as part of that, I mean, the businesses I own have very strong competitive positions. So the risk of impairment is pretty low. And, you know, like last year, like a joke with you uh, before we got on, I think I said I bought one stock and I sold one stock last year. and It was a busy year of trading. So um, there's really not, you know, even last year, all of my companies are going to report increases in sales and profits. And um, so it's almost like the bear market didn't happen. And so I think, you know, your question is not, not that it's easy. It's always a little stressful, right? When you get something that draws down that, that much uh, half or whatever it is. But if you really focus on the business uh, and you're really familiar and confident in what you own, then you can really take advantage of those opportunities instead of selling. You can even add a little more and, or at least ride it out without, you know, too much stress. Yeah. That's what I love about the strategy that it's really a low activity strategy. You said you had a busy year with, with one buy and one sell, yeah. and I had a busy year with zero buys and zero sells. So it was fantastic. I just, I have my portfolio and, and yeah. I'm, I'm happy to let it run for, for at least 10, 10 years. So, uh, that's what I really love about it. As long, of course, as long as the businesses and, and assets are performing. Um, yeah. so you have to, you have to, um, keep an eye on that, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think the approach works well if you, for people who are naturally interested and curious about businesses. If you're, and you know, you're interested in businesses, you want to learn about them and you know, naturally you want to own some and ownership implies seeing how they play out over many years, um, then it's a more natural fit. I mean, there are people involved in markets that don't, you know, don't think that way at all, right? They don't care about businesses per se. And so this approach would be very difficult if you come at it from that angle. I mean, I always tell people, you know, buy stocks like you would real estate. You're going to buy a rental property or something and you, you think you're going to own it. You don't, you don't buy it thinking you're going to flip it right away because someone comes by and offers you 25% less than what you paid for. You know, you look at it, you've done your research, you've, you have your estimate of what your returns, your IRR is going to be and you, and you own it. And I think if you think about owning stocks with that same kind of mentality, it will, should greatly improve your returns. <laughs> How important is your personal interest in the company itself and the products they are developing yeah. and, and, uh, versus yep. just um, going at it w from a numbers perspective. So how much is love versus um, brains? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And I've talked to the other money manager friends of mine about this very thing. Um, I know for me, it helps a lot uh, to be very interested in the business. So, you know, I can give you an example like, I don't know, 
you know, I remember looking at some of the beauty companies like L'Oreal and, uh, you know, but I wasn't really that intrinsically interested in that space or in following those kinds of companies. And so, yeah, they're wonderful businesses. Uh, but that's an example, you know, for me, and I'm not saying this should be the case for everybody, but for me, again, I'm only owning, you know, I have 10 stocks in the portfolio. For me, it's better if I'm really interested and enthusiastic about the business where I really like learning about it where I'm really, you know, I, I'm interested in seeing what they do next. And I have some sort of, I don't know how to describe it other than just say some interest in that business other than just following it because I think it's a good investment, but otherwise it's boring and I don't really care about it. You know what I mean? I mean, you got to think about it that you have to think about these things because a lot of investing is just a psychology. It's a big head game. And if you're going to invest in something for 10 years, yeah, it probably helps that you, that you're interested and you like the business. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's the shift I made personally as well. So I started as a deep value investor, just focused on numbers, like flipping net nets and, and other yeah. um, obscure strategies, but it just wasn't that interesting. It was just a numbers game. And now I switch yeah. completely to hundred baggers and I, I really love the hundred baggers like Tesla is my number one uh, position and I really love the company. I have a YouTube channel about it and I talk about it. I could spend thousands of hours following the company. I know it really well. And um, yeah, it just feels so much better if you're personally also in invested in, in, the, in the story or in yeah. the mission and, and uh, yeah, the value creation. Uh, yeah, if, if you're really behind it, I think that's, that's an important part, at least for me. Yeah, I agree. And for me too. Yeah, yeah and this on, sort of gets mm -hmm. not only the business, but also gets to the people involved too. I mean, I've learned this uh, the hard way too. Is that uh, you got to like the people involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to at least respect them, and, and uh, if you're getting involved with people that you that you don't particularly like or respect, that also makes it hard to hold for a long period of time because you know they're going to make mistakes and. It's going to be, uh, I mean, I'll tell you one, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but like with Texas Pacific, you know, I owned it for almost since inception of the fund. I sold it last year, but that was one where it was very, very frustrating to own it almost the whole time because the management team, mm. you know, kind of fought shareholders. I mean, I'm not telling you anything new. Anybody can Google this and you can see the, the drama that was Texas Pacific. So I'll never do that again, even mm. though that was so far, it was the most successful investment the fund has made i will i'm only going to invest with people now that i respect and feel i can uh, feel are good stewards of capital and um yeah because you're gonna you want to ride with them for a long time i think that's another factor that helps and how do you personally um select the, the universe of potential 100 baggers what what do you look at do you use screeners or do you just mm -hmm. randomly stumble upon them or, or what, what, what yeah. has been the story be behind your portfolio company? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, serendipity is a great thing, powerful force. So just sort of random bumping into names. That's been, that's been a, a good way to do it for me. I mean, I think, uh, you know, screens have also, have also pr produced names, um, at least, you know, a universe of quality businesses that, for me to kind of follow or keep an eye on. But when I think back a lot of times, it's just sort of almost random. Like, you know, you, you read something and you're researching one company and it leads you to find another one. And, 
or going to conferences, you talk to someone. You, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I, I know there are investors and, and funds out there, of course, are very systematic. You know, they've got this whole universe and they've got it very, it's very quantitative and, 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 and driven that way. Um, but for me, there's not really any systematic way to, that I've found or new ideas. It's, it's kind of an eclectic approach, not systematic at all. Um, and then I, I, you know, I have my own watch list that I've maintained over a long period of time, just being in the business and finding companies and people that I like and that I know I want to own, you know, like, uh, you know, Coparton is one of those I mentioned before. That was one I think came on my radar 2011. I had a report that Murray Stahl wrote and I really liked it and put it on my radar and I didn't wind up owning it until, you know, 2020 in the uh, pandemic sell-off, I finally bought it. So sometimes it can be a long time, just kind of, I wish I had just bought it earlier and left it alone, but uh, so yeah, ideas come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also share a lot of case studies on your blog. I, I really love your blog. I've, I've been reading it for a long time. I love your, your uh, writing style. I Thank you. Uh, will link uh, to it in the description so that anybody can, can check it out. Also uh, subscribe to your newsletter, uh, really worth, worth, uh, worthwhile. Um, yeah, the, one of the recent case studies was NVIDIA, right? Um, somebody sent you um, this this case study, this binder, um, which became a hundred bagger in just eight years. And yeah, yeah the stock was um, at a $7.7 billion market cap when this person bought it. And yeah, now it was uh, $770 billion. Um, after the 100 bagger, now it was, I think, cut cut down a little bit. But yeah, what what was what were your main learnings from from this uh, case study? Yeah, I mean, uh, it really it affirmed a lot of the things that I talk about in the book. So, <clears throat> well, number one, you know, he he had to endure a bunch of drawdowns. Uh, the other thing that was funny is in the binder he had kept a lot of kind of notes, news, and things that had hit along the way that that moved the stock price significantly one way or another that day. So there were a lot of like little highlights of sell side notes that said sell it or, or not sell it, but you know, they downgrade it and price target comes down. Hardly anybody ever says sell, it's, you know, <laughs> or they buy it, they raise the target and, you know, and then there's just little stories that just seemed like they were important at the time. But when you flip through it and you look at it, you know, over a period of years, it's just irrelevant, completely irrelevant. It didn't mm. matter at all. Um, so I, I, I like that. Uh, I like that, you know, because the financial press media, you know, it's like something happens every day. It seems important to them, you know, blaring out whatever the narrative is. There's always some important news the day or the week that people are anticipating. But then when you f look out over a number of years, you see that it really doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. Talking about whether it's a recession or not, doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. Um, so that's what things, things you know, NVIDIA really, that case study drove that home. Uh, you know, but I love when people do that. I've had other people over the years share me, share different um, experiences they've had with different stocks that have, you know, gone up 100x. And um, every once in a while I see, maybe have a book maybe inspired someone else to do similar studies in different geographies or different time periods. So I, so I love that, um, that sort of, you know, collecting a lot of these 
case studies of, of hundred baggers. And I, I think there's a lot to learn from them. And I think what I like most about this case study is that first it starts with an almost $8 billion market cap, right? So that yes. it, uh, that's really interesting. So it's not only really tiny yes. companies, it can already be a, a massive company still. Yeah, can, that's, a, that's a hugely yeah. important point. Exactly. I mean, that that's really important because I, I think I've said this before in other interviews and things that if I were to write the book again, this is one thing that I might, you know, emphasize a little more because I remember in the book I told people you know stay small and I had a market cap recommendation and a lot of people really gravitate to that and mm. then uh, I think I would emphasize more not worry so much about the market cap but to really focus instead on, on that underlying engine that we talked about at the beginning you know the return on capital and how that really compounds your value because to walk away from a company because it has an eight billion dollar market cap and here it was 100x in, in less than 10 years I mean, that's, that's an incredible run. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't get too hung up on what the market cap is. You know, I mean, look, even I remember, what was it like five, six years ago, thinking if, if a company could be, have a trillion dollar market cap seemed absurd. Right. And, and now we have a few, not only a trillion two. So you, you can't, can't let market caps uh, get too much in your way of finding a really great, find a really great compounding machine. Uh, yeah, that's more important than that starting market cap. And I think what's what's also important is to envision um, like the future and the, and the future value creation or the total addressable market or, or anything. So I think this person probably saw that GPUs are becoming important, maybe applications in artificial intelligence or cryptocurrencies and all basically was a were catalysts for for Nvidia, right? And and yeah. uh, I think you just need to have this hunch that something might happen in this direction, although you can't like, you don't see it in the numbers yet. So it's, it's almost <clears throat> like a, you, you have to believe in a, in a future or in a mission yeah. in a, uh, and, and, uh, that's, that's what I love about the hundred bagger strategy is that it's not only about the numbers yet, it, it is about the numbers. It, it's about the growth, but it's also about what this company could become in 10 years. And there is yeah. a lot of belief in it, right? You you really have to believe in it. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it help you, you know, it almost helps that you have some a little of imagination, a little bit mm. of you know, thinking out what the future might look like ten years from now. And you know, because I do run into people sometimes who you know talk about hundred baggers and they want to be a little dismissive, like how can you, how can anybody ever tell a stock is going to be a hundred x? But is it really that hard if you think about it? I mean, think back on some of the companies that have gone 100x. Was it that difficult to imagine, you know, when McDonald's was early days and had only a few thousand restaurants? Was it that hard to imagine that they might have, you know, 30,000? And was it that hard to imagine they might go outside the U.S.? I mean, you know, you look at uh, the retail examples are are easier because you have a little box and you have so many stores in a region and then you can imagine them being national, right? So, but... Um, yeah, I think it definitely helps to have some code. If you have some sort of vision of what this could look like in 10 years, that that's could be a good guiding star for you on that investment. Um, because there's also a lot of things that come up that you would never have predicted. I mean, I, I also think of examples like Apple, where they invented whole new markets, right? That didn't, didn't exist or Amazon before AWS when it was just a bookseller. I mean, 
So it, it can take some imagination. Absolutely. And even then it's, it's not an easy ride, right? So, so even in this case study of Nvidia, the stock fell 57% in 2018, 57% drawdown, and it still became a hundred bagger. And then after it became a hundred bagger, it was cut in half. So it, it, it's a <laughs> yeah. really, it's a really wild ride. <laughs> yes. Yes. A really, really wild ride. Yeah, it is definitely. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about Apple. I think that's that's also a fantastic uh, case study. So yeah, yeah I, I was looking at the history. So Apple was trading at around one hundred billion dollar market cap in two thousand nine, and then became a thirty bagger um, since then uh, to a three trillion market cap um, at its at its peak. And yeah, uh, yeah. How how do you think about a company like like Apple? Would you have ever imagined a company growing to three trillion? No, <laughs> no, no, I, I would, I don't think I would have, I, I know I didn't at the time, but of course now, you know, you learn these lessons sometimes again and again. And so now, as we were just talking about, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't let market cap kind of, you know, be the smokescreen that keeps me away from looking at a certain name anymore. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's an, I think that's important. Um, your focus really needs to be on the business and, but I, I, you know, I don't, I haven't looked at Apple seriously as an investment in a long time. So, um, I don't really have a strong opinion about it now. Yeah. I just find it fascinating because yeah, it, 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 it used to be a startup, right. And it it was a high flyer and then they had the big trouble in the, in the nineties and then Steve jobs came back and yeah, the engine was really the, the iPhone in, in the end. Right. And, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's ginormous 100 billion net earnings per year it's it's absolutely unimaginable um i think nobody could have imagined it and uh i think that's yeah. that's the that's the beauty if you buy something that's working well and just let it compound for a really long yeah. time then magical things could could happen absolutely yeah definitely yeah, and when we when we look at at Tesla, that's that's my that's my uh, personal fa favorite example. So I invested in Tesla. I had a look at it at about a fifty billion dollar market cap back in twenty seventeen, and wow. uh, now Tesla and it was a, a loss um, producing a company, of course, and uh, negative cash flow and everything. So it was purely imagination. I I just invest in I I yeah made a bet on on Elon Musk that that he could. Uh, pull it off. And now today we have a company that has an ROE of 30% or more and the revenue growth of 30% or more, uh, price to sales, um, used to be 20. Now it's, it was, uh, more recently it, it fell to five and the P ratio now is 52 EPS growth rate was 57 in the most recent quarter. So the peg is below one. Um, so, um, yeah, but yet Tesla is trading at a $600 billion market cap right now. So if you would just use ordinary thinking, you would think, yeah, maybe it's, it won't become a 100 bagger from, from here, but I could absolutely imagine a 10 bagger or a 20 bagger from here, if they right. can really pull it, pull it off and compound for a really long time, like, yeah. like they're doing now. So you're up more than 10 X on your initial investment, even after a, a huge drawdown. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it works, but it's, yeah, it was still brutal. I mean, it's, it was 70% yeah. drawdown last, sure. last year and now it's, now it doubles in a month. So it's a, <laughs> it's a really, it's a, it's a roller coaster. But the, but the cool thing is that 
the the business the fundamentals is is working like clockwork and now they are producing free cash flow they are producing um earnings growth each quarter the units yeah. are improving etc the mm -hmm. margins are good so for me tesla i i compare it um right now i compare it with apple and that's what that's what um gives me so much hope because nobody could imagine apple become a three trillion dollar company and um just with a with a phone i mean it's a it's a fantastic um phone you have a supercomputer in your pocket and everything but if you just think about the total addressable markets of of uh not only cars but mobility as a whole and energy business um it's it's orders of magnitude larger and mm. yeah just if if i imagine if they execute perfectly it it could become really huge and unimaginably huge and uh yeah, that's that's what what fascinates me, but it's still mind-boggling yeah. to to see a six hundred billion dollar company growing so fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's I mean that's another point too with these is that great companies, you know, they adapt, they figure out new things, new markets, and and so uh, it does you know require a little bit of that imagination again. I mean, a lot of times people, if you just I remember I did I did this myself with Amazon, and I'll never forget because people would do this analysis with Amazon and say way back in 2000 or whatever it was in the nineties and would say, well, even if they sold every book, you know, in the U S <laughs> it still wouldn't justify today's market cap, but nobody thought, wow, well, what if they sold something other than books on their platform? Right. Just that never mind the other, you know, AWS and the other things. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the wonderful thing about business is it's sometimes unpredictable and new things happen. Yeah, and when 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 to sell a one hundred bagger? So um, yeah, the recommendation is always as long as the story is intact, as long as the company is producing the growth and executing on on its uh, vision and, and mission, don't sell. Um, but uh, yeah, you said sometimes multiples get um, really big, and so what 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 are your personal selling uh, criteria? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what are my personal selling criteria? Yeah, it's uh, uh, if there, there's some if there's some sort of impairment or in the business, or you have something definitely wrong, that would be, you know, a reason to sell. Uh, and that could be, say, a new competitor comes in, so that has something that. I mean, I, I don't want to really talk too much in abstractions because that doesn't really answer it so much. I mean, this, this kind of stuff is hard to do when you're in the trenches, right? And you're following the business on a quarterly basis to know it's not going to perform as it was, as it has been. But I mean, that's part of it. Part of it is, is that. So that would be one reason to sell. I mean, if there's any sort of malfeasance, any sort of fraud, obviously that's a reason to sell. Uh, it's, it's, the list of why to sell is kind of short. I mean, I don't, I'm very, very reluctant to sell something just because it's gotten expensive for reasons that we've talked about already, which is that, you know, just because it looks expensive now doesn't mean that, you know, two, three, four, five years down the road, it's way above that price. And mm. so I don't want to get in the habit of trading or trimming. I don't do that. Um, so I, I, but again, there is a price at which if things get completely crazy where you might where you might take something and then you, you run a portfolio. So if there's something that comes along that's really a lot more compelling than what you have, you you might make that change. Again, you got to do that very reluctantly because it's easy to convince yourself, mm. you know, this is better than what I have and then make that make that change. You can convince yourself almost anything. Right. So you have to really keep that bar high. It has to be very 
a lot, lot better to make the switch because uh, you're more likely to make a mistake. I mean, so those are some of the big things. I mean, I it's selling, I think, is not easy. Of course, this yeah. is probably one of the more difficult things in investing is figuring out when to sell because for the most part, when I sell something, it's still, you know, a good business and it's probably going to trade higher <laughs> several years from now uh, from when I sold it. Um, so the question is, you know, is what I did with the capital better? You know, would have been better off staying there? Or did I, the move I made, did that pay off? And yeah, I mean, it's very, very hard. So I don't have any easy rules in selling. I do co- talk about selling in the book. You covered the main, the main one, which is that the business stops performing. That's a, that's a reason to get out. Um, but it's difficult. And you also recommend to never sell um, because of non-business reasons, right? Right? Because of interest rates or macro, or there are always yeah. a million reasons to sell or or to rethink, overthink things. Um, so uh, you should only sell when the when the business fundamentals are, um, yeah, yeah. Not, not hitting the criteria. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Th- reasons not to, you know, reasons not to sell things yeah. would be <laughs> I don't sell thing because you're afraid there's going to be a recession. You know, don't sell because you think interest rates are going up or down or whatever macro concern is. Those should should not drive the decision. Uh, so those are important. So does macro or interest rates, does that, um, is that any part of your, of your, um, process or do you completely ignore those factors? Well, you can't, I don't know if you can completely ignore it because it's implicit in everything you do. I mean, interest rates and, uh, but I don't go out and say, you know, have a macro prediction that then I try to fit investments into this macro prediction that I have. And I don't do that. I, I think it's a matter of what you let drive the process first. Uh, you know, as a first as a business and then valuation, uh, for me, but macro is not something that I'm actively worried about. I'm not trying to, I'm not parsing what the fed said. I'm not, I don't have any view on what they're going to raise or cut. I don't have any views on there's going to be a recession here in first quarter or not, or second quarter. I don't think about those things. Um, so to that extent, yeah, I don't pay attention to the macro. The macro is really hard to get right, and, and um, there's some people who are really good at it. So you know, all more power to them. But I, I think it's incredibly difficult to get that right, and I'm better off, I think, just investing in businesses that can succeed in a lot of different macro environments. And so I don't have to worry about predicting where we are in a cycle or anything like that. Yeah, and so if if anyone's listening and um, he or she says, okay, 100 bagger investing sounds really interesting, <laughs> who doesn't want to have a 100 bagger? What would you recommend to those newbies? Um, what um, yeah should they uh, should they consider or or what yeah what what's what will be the right like? What's your your uh, personal experience uh, from somebody who's who's been doing that for many years? Well, I mean, I, I somebody somebody who wants to start doing it this this way. Uh, I think you got to first kind of get to that business mindset. So, you know, read Phelps' original book is good too. You know, one hundred one in the stock market. That's what inspired my book. Um, I think those two combined will get you in the right sort of frame of mind. There you go. That's yep. it. Yep. Um, of course, you know. Buffett and Munger read their stuff. If I were that's some newbie, that's if I was say some newbie, that's the education. I'd say, yeah. well, first you want to get some kind of basic, you know, 
knowledge of accounting and statistics. You got to know those basic things. And then I'd read all Buffett's letters and read all of Munger's speeches. I'd read Phelps's book. And those are all great things. I mean, Peter Lynch's books still hold up really well. I like those. And, uh, and then, you know, you can start with, uh, sometimes I recommend people do when they have a hard time kind of thinking this way, as I say, well, just take some part of your account and try that, you know, start that way. Just create a little like coffee can portfolio of however many number of stocks that you're going to leave alone for 10 years and experiment with that way. And then if you want to have some small account where you can scratch your speculative itch where you want to trade do it over there and see uh, what happens. So sometimes that, that can be helpful too. Absolutely. And what do you personally find most difficult about implementing this strategy? Well, um, you know, finding, finding the names that you're really super comfortable with. Uh, I think that's probably the most difficult thing. Uh, it takes a lot of work for me anyway, to get to a point where I'm willing to commit to it. And, uh, there really aren't, I really don't ever have that many ideas. Uh, like I said, I have 10 now and there's a couple others that I might like that I'm kind of working on that I'd like to own but I really never have that many ideas. It's so that's the hardest part is, is coming is finding the ideas. Um, but then, you know, once you get them, uh, as we were talking about before, it's a relatively hands off, not very busy investment approach. So uh, I think that's the hardest part. What do you think the hardest part is? Um, I think just patience and and riding out the the difficult uh, periods. Yeah, this is really true. this is really difficult. I mean, in in the case of Tesla, there was I think also a five year stretch where the stock didn't go anywhere, and it was um, yeah bleeding cash and everything, and short yeah. attacks and so many problems. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think if you is, ask most uh, people, that's what they would say. Would say yeah. something like what you just said. Well, for most people, I think the biggest challenge is just leaving it alone, right? Riding out the ups and downs. It's very hard. Yeah. Not try to meddling with it. So I'm now thinking about hedging strategies and buying put options and I don't know what. And, um, yeah, may probably most probably I will make my results worse, right? That the more I mm -hmm. fidget yeah. um, around with it, um, the, at least uh, statistically from, from the study, that's, that's what people uh, say that the more they, they are, uh, get active, the, the worse the results get. So I think that's, that's the most difficult part. And then really the finding the right balance between leaving it alone and, <clears throat> and following the business, right? So do you follow your businesses each and every quarter or do you do it, um, uh, twice a year yeah. or yearly or, or what's yeah. your, what, what's the optimal cadence? Yeah. I mean, you know what, it reminds me of, uh, there was an interview once with Buffett and, uh, I think it was Andy Sewer asked him and said, well, you know, you own a big position in Apple. And he said, you know, how closely do you follow the company? And Buffett said, well, I don't follow it too closely. He said, if I have to follow it too closely, I probably shouldn't own it, you know, which I thought was a really good answer, right? I mean, gets to your point. You, you want to follow the businesses. Uh, for me, yeah, quarterly check-in when they report seems to be good enough. Um, and for me, just because I love this stuff, I mean, even in between, I'm often talking to a competitor or, you know, I have a talk with a former executive there or employee or you know something so there's always kind of this sort of background work that i do but 
you know, I don't know that you have to do that. It's just, I, I like to do that. I enjoy that kind of getting the more in-depth kind of 360 view of the business and all that work that I do. I often tell people too, that the, the research is not necessarily because I think I'm going to find something that the market doesn't know. It's be like, ah, you know, is this buried in footnote 13 here or something the market doesn't know. It's really to build up my own confidence in the business and my ability to hold on to it. It's easier when you, when you know it really well and you know what's going on and, like through last year was a perfect example because last year for all the bear markets that I've been involved in so far, uh, last year's was one where it didn't really seem to affect the underlying businesses that much that I owned, you know, it wasn't like 2008 where it was a huge impact and you could see it. People's, you know, quarterly numbers started coming in. They were terrible, you know, uh, so it was easier to ride out because, you, you know, the businesses were still doing very well in, in, in case of my portfolio. So um, it's just it's interesting, interesting ride. And do you have a, some fixed holding period? So if you decide to buy a stock because you recommend the coffee can portfolio for as, as one possible strategy to pick a portfolio and then really let it be for 10 years. Uh, do you have something yeah. similar for your buys that you say? I don't touch it for five years, um, no matter mm -hmm. what. Yeah, I mean, ideally, I don't buy it. I don't. I don't touch it for a decade. It was, mm -hmm. But you know, I don't. I don't want to like handcuff myself with that. Yeah. You know, if something absolutely changes, I'm gonna. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make the change. But well, it's kind of like we talked about earlier. That that serves as a really good filter. If that's my framework coming in, um, I, I find that that's a very helpful way to start. Uh, and and again, it weeds off businesses that. If I think there's some concern, like a lot of times, because the approach is focused on having a high return on capital, their biggest concern is competition. Their ability, to, right? Their ability to continue to earn those high returns is a function of them being able to defend the business. So I'm always, usually, if you were to ask me what the biggest risk in any particular name is, I'm going to start to think, talk about competition. Yeah. Uh, that's something to keep an eye on. Um, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, I don't remember the rest <clears> of my train of thought yeah. there, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I think that's that's really difficult because if you if you even on a quarterly basis, if you think from a business owner perspective, I mean, a yeah. quarter is is nothing, right? I mean, Doesn't nothing really can matter. happen. Nothing can happen in a quarter. So even if it's a bad quarter, or yeah, some whatever, some lockdowns or some supply chain issues or whatever, it just doesn't matter right in the long term. So I, I'm true. just thinking ideally it should be like yearly or so because in a yeah. year something can happen. And if something right. gets really worse in a year, then you should get concerned. But on a quarterly yeah. basis, it like feels like noise, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I also yeah. follow it. Uh, more often than that, but, uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Thinking, and you know, yeah. this is one of the things that some, some, some European companies, they only report once every six months, which is kind of nice. Mm. <laughs> you think about mm. it, uh, extends out that period to checking in, but yeah, I, I know I have, I have one investor friend of mine who only, when it comes to quarterly numbers, he just looks at the headlines, doesn't even bother. You know, he, he only digs in really once a year, like you're suggesting. Mm. So I'm not there yet, but I still, I'm still so <laughs> curious. I just want to, I want to dig in anyway and look, but. I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I can I can't think of really a time where any of the businesses I own where one quarter really is just like that was the moment. 
everything changed, you know, doesn't really business doesn't really work that way. I mean, I'm sure there's some people have examples where they can think of one quarter there where, yeah, it did change. But, you know, I, I think almost all the time, your quarterly numbers are just sort of noise and fade into the background and don't really matter at the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe um, we're coming to the, to the end. Could you maybe give us a two minute summary of your current version of the 100 bagger strategy? What's most important? What are the most important criteria? How do we get to a 100 bagger? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say most important is, uh, that return on capital somehow. And I know I'm always vague with that because it depends on what business you're looking at, whether you, you could use a return on invested capital or return on capital employed, or, you know, there's a number of different metrics out there, but you have to have some business that earns a high return on capital and what's high, you know, I don't know, 15, 20% or more, something like that. And then you want to have that business, have the ability to continue to earn that return for many, many years. Those, that's the real focus right there. And then everything off that uh, is just whether or not it can support those numbers or not. So, for example, we talked about you know spending a lot of time on competition because that's going to help determine whether or not a business can continue to earn those kind of returns is what kind of competition they have or they're able to defend that business. I always also spend you know, filter out things really quickly on balance sheets so anything that has any leverage or anything because, again, you're going to have to survive ups and downs different business cycles and you want to have a, a business that's not going to be at the mercy of its creditors every time there's a downturn. And so I think those are, um, in, uh, of course, growth, right? But that's kind of implied in, in the numbers before. If you have a business that's able to do 30% return on equity year after year after year, uh, and the growth is kind of embedded in there. But you want to think about businesses that have those big addressable markets, as we talked about before, businesses that can grow have some vision for what it could be in 10 years time. So that time frame is important. Um, those are, those are probably the most essential. I wouldn't worry so much about market cap. Like we talked about, I wouldn't worry so much about what industry they're in. You know, that was one of the other lessons from the book is really any, almost any, lots of different industries have had hundred baggers. It's not like they're all tech or, or whatever. Um, and then my personal favorite for me is I, I like to have some skin in the game. So I like management team can focus on the incentives. How are the, how's management paid? Are they paid to produce sales growth? Do they have uh, some other metrics? So th those can be important to look at as well. And so that's my, that'd be my two minute summary. Yeah. Personally, I love the, the owner operator criterion so so that you really have an owner operator at the at the helm of the company who uh, yeah ideally owns 10 to 20 percent of of the company and that really can drive decisions and and move the company forward um that that would be um also a, a criterion uh, for me H how do you think yeah. about that yeah i, I love I love the owner operators if i can find an owner operator that's the that's the preferred ideal setup where the guy running it uh, guy or gal owns you know, like you said ideally 10 or 20 percent of it uh, lo i love those situations those are situations that are hard can are hard to find but they're out there and um you know secondarily to that if i can't find that it's always nice to have some kind of owner it could be 
a family. You know, I have like Brown and Brown, for example, Powell Brown is a third generation CEO, but he's an excellent CEO and it's his name on the company door. It's his family still owns a large chunk of the share. So, you know, he's incentivized to make sure the business is, is doing well and he's there watching over it, make sure, you know, they don't do anything stupid. So I, I just want somebody there. That's that's the idea of having the owner operator, somebody there to drive it, um, and not a hired hand who's going to pursue some silly acquisition or, you know, there's lots of ways to mess it up. So I, I like that as well. That's definitely important for me. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for writing this fantastic book. It's my absolute number one favorite um, business and investing book, and I would recommend it to everyone to read it great so thank well, you thank for you very much for i appreciate yeah. the kind words and it's good to be on with you good questions and uh yeah wish you wish you the best in your hunt thank you likewise so everybody um yeah let's let me know your comments in the in the comments below and of course subscribe to this channel if you want to see future interviews like this one um, I will be doing many more interviews in the future. So um, yeah, subscribe and hit the notification bell to not miss any future video. And with that, have a great day and see you in the next video. <laughs> <laughs>